1: 2025 QX80, coming this summer. The Volume. No! Oh my God, how could he do that? Are you on? Donate your check.
2: What? Charles Darwin. The nerves is where it's at.
4: Welcome everybody back into Nerd Sesh. As always, I'm Carson Brever and alongside me is Logan Camden. And today we have a lot of awesome basketball to break down with you all. We will talk about all four series, but we're going to start with the A-lister Lakers Warriors where we just had a crazy finish. The Lakers steal a game it felt like at home to go up 3-1. What's your reaction and biggest takeaways from this, Logan.
2: Yeah, Steel one is right, Carson. I mean, it's just weird that the Lakers win this game. This is not a great defensive Lakers game. This is not a great LeBron game. This is not a great AD game. D'Lo has one of those d nights, and Stephen Curry, I think, was definitively the best player on the floor. But you have Austin Reeves show up. The Warriors make some really crucial mistakes down the line in this game. And Lonnie Walker comes out of nowhere and scores 15 points in the fourth quarter. I mean... My mind is just kind of boggled, dude, because for the majority of this game, it just felt like the Warriors were just going to keep pounding and keep pounding and keep pounding and, uh, you know, put this game away. Clay kind of goes cold. Wiggins kind of goes cold on some really open looks. Because, I mean, this offense came the entire game, and especially after that really bad stretch in the third quarter, dude, I was ready to write the Lakers off. You have a couple of bad Lakers turnovers, some dumb shot selection, the Warriors get, I think, like three or four straight. I mean, easy transition buckets, and I'm like, I don't know how they come back from this. And the hero of this game is Lonnie Walker the fourth. I mean, I it just feels weird saying that, man. It felt like the Warriors were gonna get this thing done, especially with how Steph was playing this entire game. I mean, cooking the Lakers defense. You can look at how he shot in this game. 12 of 30, 3 of 14, not a classic great Steph shooting night, but he racks up 14 assists. The Lakers have absolutely no answer for him in the high pick and roll. I mean, honestly, with you, I'm just kind of in shock. I don't, <laughs> I can, I genuinely cannot believe the Lakers won this game when so many things that are key to their formula to winning games did not go their way. Um, yeah, I can't. I'm just kind of in shock. I can't believe the Lakers won this game, but uh, the Warriors made some really bad mistakes down the line here that I think we need to point out. Clay taking that jump shot. Um, early. You have the Dre and Steph turnovers late. Uh, those are really crucial, and the Lakers had a big-time hero, and Lonnie Walker makes some really tough shots here down the line. Just strange, man. It didn't feel like the Lakers controlled either end of the floor the way we know they can, and they still come out on top.
4: I will say, although it definitely felt like the Warriors outplayed the Lakers in this game, it also didn't feel like we were getting the best version of the Warriors throughout. I think that You have to look at the pure shooting in this game, obviously, as a downside for them. They just missed a lot of solid looks, 29% from deep. Steph, even, as you said, totally controlled this game, but did not shoot well from beyond the arc, and nobody else really stepped up, and I do think this is a spot where we have to continue to hold Jordan Poole accountable for his play in these playoffs, because I understand that... Maybe it's become a tired storyline, right? The guy has almost never played well in this run. But when you have a complete lack of sources of reliable offense outside of Steph, and this guy is supposed to be potentially that third offensive spark plug, maybe your second best at actually creating a shot for himself, and he goes 0-4 with two turnovers in 10 minutes and plays horrible defense to the point where he plays himself off the floor, it's just inexcusable from a guy who was 17-4 and on 65% true shooting in last year's playoffs, this year he's been 10.5 a night on 34% from the field, 28% from three, so it was just a really strange game overall, but at the end of the day, the Lakers just did enough, and they didn't really play that well, but you have LeBron hunting Steph late, and you get to the line twice out of that, you have Lonnie, I mean a combination of shots off the catch, and pull up jumpers, and He has that floater, which, mind-boggling. This just felt like a game where somebody needed to step up and actually take it. And it ends up being that Lonnie Walker is a key cog in that, who I wanted to shout out after game three. We forgot to mention him, but I thought played some real quality minutes on both ends of the floor in that one and earns the right to close in this one and cashes in on it. And then you have the timely defense from AD. Obviously, the last play from the Warriors is disastrous Draymond just barreling downhill and sort of seemingly panicking trying to get the ball to Wiggins and it's a turnover but the possession before that where you have AD with the really good switch onto Steph cuts off every driving angle forces him into that hard step back two and then they get a second look at it and he contests a deep three quite well it was just a matter of who made the plays in the biggest moments because 80 was great offensively in the first half. He had his awesome skilled shot making, 19, and then mostly disappeared offensively in the second half. And he did not dominate defensively like he did in games one and three. I mean, Steph was able to create a lot of quality looks for himself and his teammates, just dissecting, hitting the roll man repeatedly and getting his teammates good looks at the rim. But LeBron was bad in this game. Like, another brutal jump shooting night, two of nine from deep, and just repeatedly settled and was bad defensively for most of the game. D'Lo was horrible, goes one of 10. The Lakers as a whole shot poorly from the perimeter, 24% from deep. And you point to that one stretch in the third, that's when I thought, okay, they've been getting away with it up to this point. I thought they came into this game not engaged at the peak level. Nobody other than AD was stepping up offensively in that first half. LeBron clearly just didn't have it. Delo had been brutal, and then you go, Draymond gets that mismatch in the post, gets fouled, okay, now the game is tied. LeBron settles for a deep two, miss, GP2 transition bucket. LeBron settles for a three, miss, GP2 transition bucket. LeBron fumbles the catch, turnover, and nobody contests GP2 on a wide open corner three. I get that he's not the most willing shooter, it's not his preference, but for God's sakes, I mean, he can still hit them, and he does. And then you have Jared Vanderbilt try to attack a mismatch with Steph, a quote-unquote mismatch. Brother, I don't care who was out there. It could be Muggsy Bogues. It could be my cousin Levi. I don't want Jared Vanderbilt initiating offense. And guess what? Steph just draws a charge, and then the Lakers fall asleep defensively, and Steph gets a layup off of a cut. So they're up nine just like that. And that felt representative of the game that the Lakers had played up to that point, and that felt like, all right. Warriors, time to throw your knockout punch. And they just never threw that knockout punch. Other guys around Steph did not step up enough. And ultimately, Steph just missed a couple shots that if he makes this game, goes the other direction. And that's a big
2: thing, too, that I think we emphasized why me and you favored the Lakers in this series, Carson. The Lakers just have more... uh, What's the word I'm looking for? They have more like range of... Not being great, I don't know what there's. There's a certain phrase that I'm looking for here, but they just have more wiggle room, is what I'm getting at, for an off night, and they can still get the job done. The Warriors don't have that wiggle room against the Lakers. Why do the Lakers have that advantage? Because it's something that you laid out here. The Lakers just do have the wealth of more creators. When Jordan Poole has another shitty night like this, when Klay Thompson utterly disappears when Wiggins isn't hitting open threes when Steph is not lights out from behind the arc you know somebody's got to pick up that slack and there's just a lot of guys on this Lakers bench that can pick up that slack when D'Lo has an off night LeBron and AD have midnights Austin Reeves is there Lonnie Walker shows out now you know I'm not saying it is a bit of an anomaly to see you know Lonnie Walker show up in a big spot like this but they just do have more dependable guys that you trust and that matters like yeah, I mean, that's what I really think it came down to tonight, is when nobody else outside of Steph steps up and, like you said, makes that knockout punch, puts this game away, the Lakers just have more guys to turn to and more wiggle room. Um, it it this is an, This is the ugliest game, I think, of the series, man. Like, it just didn't ever feel like either of these teams played great. That's what we come here for. We don't come for mid-games. The playoffs are great because we see these teams reach their ceilings, and it was just it was a grimy-ass game, man. Um but I think that's where what it really comes down to, man, is the Lakers have more creators. D'Lo, you can afford Davin off night. LeBron, you can afford to off night because Austin Reeves is knocking down pull-up jump shots. He's getting into the lane. He's drawing fouls. He's getting layups. Lonnie Walker turns it up. and You're not expecting it. Dennis Schroeder gives you some really good minutes getting downhill as well in here. And again, the the Warriors just don't have a ton of guys that can go out there and create their own shots. It's Steph versus the world, and that's really what it felt like tonight
4: it was definitely a Steph versus the world dynamic and I think it's funny I saw a lot of people today commenting on the level that Steph reached as a playmaker and this is now his second game in this series with 12 plus assists as if that's some sort of surprise and we've heard people throughout the years say oh well Steph's not a point guard I guess because he doesn't initiate like the vast majority of the sets but I don't know if people remember the the Mark Jackson days. I mean, Steph was running volume, pick and roll like every other great point guard in today's NBA. He was an eight and a half assists per game guy. He averaged eight plus assists per game in both playoff runs. And then Steve Kerr completely changed the system, made him much more of that off ball weapon. But like that was before he took the leap. He was this great playmaking guard. And so in a situation where they haven't been able to create the looks that they want for him away from the ball and... When they are willing to involve AD in this pick and roll to bring him out of the paint where he wasn't as, again, dominant, cutting off those passing lanes to the rollers as he was in Game 3, your best option is to just rely on Steph, 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 and he was phenomenal as that playmaker in this game, but I do think the Lakers are more talented, and I have felt that way. Like, they just have more ways to win. Like, we can see those dominant defensive performances. We can see... Dominant two way AD. We can see LeBron asserting himself getting downhill, putting a lot of pressure on the rim. We can see Reeves, Dilo trade off having big nights if it's getting into the lane or as pull up jump shooters. Schroeder can come in and get his 18 efficiently, right? If he's just getting downhill, getting to the line, knocks down a pull up jumper or two. Rui, we've seen have offensive explosions. Now we see a Lonnie Walker offensive explosion. The Warriors winning has been Steph's great. They're locked in defensively. Draymond's probably really good, and then they've got to collectively make shots outside of Steph. It just feels like they are more reliant on their one supernova, much more reliant, and it wasn't enough in this one. And this really is a game where the Lakers get away with some of their worst tendencies showing because having a poor shooting night is one thing, but not being fully engaged and motivated for for 48 minutes is something that we have seen this team toggle back and forth with all postseason sometimes they look like this absolute world beater dominating defensively downhill eating up free throws eating up rim attempts multiple really good creators and then sometimes it feels like and eh, the transition defense isn't so good they're not dialed in on that end they're settling offensively and this was one of the latter games so to win that to put yourself up 3-1 is uh a real win for them, and you have to view it as a big missed opportunity for the Warriors.
2: I do view this as a big missed opportunity for the Warriors. I mean, this is a game that they needed to put away. You need to tie this thing up because uh, now you're fighting with your backs against the wall. I'm never going to count the Golden State Warriors out of a game. I'm never going to count a team led out by Steph Curry out of a game. Uh, but on the topic of superstars, I want to ask you a question, Carson. We've been tracking this throughout the playoffs, throughout the end of the regular season. LeBron came up big in this game when he needed to, right? When the Lakers needed a couple of tough buckets, he got downhill, he got to the rack, he did what he needed to do. Are you starting to feel at all antsy that we may not get the best version of King James, that we may not get that LeBron, like, super king mode? Because I felt like at a couple points in this game, we saw him, you know, try to take over a little bit more, try to control the game, and he just couldn't. Do you... Are you getting antsy or scared a little bit that we may not see LeBron kick into that you know, highest gear that, that we think he can reach?
4: I don't think we're going to. I certainly don't think he's ever going to challenge AD for the best player on this team in this run like I thought he might have been capable of before the playoffs started. And we saw him excel in like a more complimentary role in Game 3, right? defending his ass off opportunistic in transition, creating for others, and it was a really, really good LeBron game all around. This game, he's not so engaged defensively for most of it. He is relying heavily on the jump shot that is just off. And yeah, there were stretches in this one. Again, hunting Steph at the end. That was good. Thank God he took the game into his own hands. After that ugly stretch in the third, when AD goes and sits and it feels like, oh boy, things could really get out of hand here, LeBron steps up. I forget who it was, but he had a mismatch in isolation, gets to the bucket easily, then as a roller, gets another good look at the rim, I do want to see LeBron just putting more pressure on the rim. It doesn't necessarily have to be controlling the game point, LeBron, just please, when your jump shot is this inconsistent, and really, at this point, this consistently off, like it's the rarity when LeBron is having a good shooting night, do your team a favor because good things happen when he gets into the lane, and I do also want to see some more willingness from him, as we've talked about over and over again, to take over in that initiating actions role, because it's like, when Dilo was just shooting you in the foot in this first half, don't you want to step up and save this dumpster fire? And he didn't do that consistently in this game, he did do it just enough, but I don't think there's any chance we're consistently getting great LeBron. I think he's shown us how he can impact, and it's with defensive engagement, and it's with selective downhill force, and then hopefully his jumper's on, and he's making good decisions.
2: So I don't want to get get hyperbolic here. I mean, is that LeBron gone?
4: It looks like it. I mean, maybe it's the foot, but I don't think we can just say the whole he's picking his spots thing anymore because... That's part of it. Surely, LeBron could be more aggressive, could impose his will more on these games. There's no question. But to not see it once throughout this entire playoff stretch when there have been spots where it sure would be nice, yeah, I don't think we're seeing top five player LeBron. But we can see top 10 player LeBron and with... Maybe AD reaching that top five level because of how dominant he is defensively and the level of skill we're seeing from him offensively and good Reeves and good D'Lo in this team's overall defensive ceiling. They could still win a title with top 10 LeBron, but he's not going to be the best player on this team. I think that I can say that pretty confidently at this point. So the Lakers are now up 3-1 in this one, Logan. Do you see a path back for the Warriors?
2: 100%. I mean... I think it's going to take a lot of things going right, a lot of variables lining up in exactly the right way, almost like a a perfect puzzle. Like, I think you're going to need to see three great games from Stephen Curry, and I'm not talking, you know, great like in this game. I mean, shooting the lights out, playmaking for his teammates, mm-hmm. playing apex level basketball. You're need to you're going to need to see Clay and Wiggins knocking down all these open attempts. I think you're going to need to see the Lakers kind of, again, be lackadaisical in their coverage. My biggest issue with the pick-and-roll tonight from Steph was when AD would help up, the guy on the weak side would just stay there every time and just surrender like an easy layup. I think that if the Lakers are going to keep doing that, I mean, the Warriors are going to eat on them every single night. Like, there were just wide-open layups, a lot of stuff at the rim. I think it's harder. Like we laid out, I think the Lakers have an easier path to winning one of these games. And just night-to-night, just have an easier path because you've got a multitude of guys that can go off. I think the Warriors are going to have to practically play three perfect games of basketball, perfect dubs basketball, hustle, good ball movement, Steph's pick-and-roll, setting everything up, and guys knocking down open jump shots. I'm never going to count the Warriors out of a series. I'm never going to count them out of an individual game, and I'm certainly not going to count a team with Steph Curry out of a game. Yeah, there's a path, but it's a slim path. At this point, I think I'd take... I'd probably take Lakers in six. You know, I think the Dubs maybe get another one, but then I think the Lakers turn it on and finish them off.
4: I think that's the most likely outcome. I don't know what level of intensity the Lakers are going to approach game five with, but I think once they're back on their home court, they're not going to want to let this go seven, and I think that they're better when they're dialed in. I don't think we can deny this defensive ceiling that we've seen, this physical and athletic advantage that they have pronounced in games one and three. Game two, I mean, was awesome Steph right they didn't have an answer but they also weren't peak dialed in defensively AD was soft and just not the player he's capable of being offensively when both these teams are at their best I just think the Lakers are better and I can't bet on three great warrior games in a row when we haven't seen it when nobody outside of Steph has been that consistent force offensively like The Sacramento series was a grind, man. It was up and down. And this Lakers team is better. And this Lakers team is now up 3-1. So, in theory, there's a path. It's, as you said, great Steph, great shooting around him. And you get LeBron to settle, and he's not very good. And you get D'Lo overexerting himself, and he's not very good. And maybe AD comes down from the really high level that he's largely been playing at. But it's too many things to come together, I think. The Lakers are better. And they got away with winning a game in which they weren't better. And that's the key. Because, I mean, people call AD alternating days. The Lakers can be alternating games. But now that they've gotten that one where they weren't their best selves, I think the door is probably pretty much shut for the Warriors. Let's move on here and talk about a series that has
0: That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your life sports experience at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Eligible American Express card required. Benefits vary by card and by venue. Terms apply.
1: Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all new 2025 Infinity QX80. feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer.
0: Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple. 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases. And 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA. Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms
4: apply. Fascinating. And featured some very, very high-level offensive basketball. Nuggets' Suns, Logan. The Suns have evened this thing up. Another phenomenal game from Devin Booker, big game from Katie to counter a Jokic 50-piece in game four. What's your feel of this series right now, and what did you take away from that game four?
2: Well, I want to start with uh, the Jokic 50-piece, and I think it is so stupid to me that one of the greatest playoff performances of all time is getting overshadowed by this dumb uh, Ishbia mess uh, from the sideline. Carson, only 13 players in NBA history have had a 53-point playoff game. Do you want to see if you can name the other 12 guys that have done this?
4: Sure. Elgin Baylor, Michael Jordan, Jimmy Butler this year, Donovan Mitchell. Who else has gotten over 53? Giannis didn't do that. LeBron hasn't done that. AI didn't do that. All right, for time's sake, <laughs> we can keep this moving. But
2: So you got Baylor, Butler, Jordan, and Mitchell. You've got Barkley, Rick Barry, Wilt Chamberlain twice, John Havlicek, Damian Lillard, Isaiah Thomas, Jerry West. I also want to note, Michael Jordan did this a disgusting six times. He's disgusting. Yeah. And now joining the club, Nikola Jokic. I mean, I just think that we need to – who cares, right? Jokic was in the right. I think we all in the basketball sphere can accept that. Can we talk about what he did on the court? I mean, he had the 6th most efficient 53 or higher point game in playoff history. That's 74.2 uh, true shooting percentage. It's the only 53-11 game in playoff history. And again, we see it. that Jokic is just unstoppable. Like, I I don't know what other word to use at this point. He's got impeccable touch and footwork. The way he could just spin on a dime on the block. The way anybody... If it's a really long defender like KD, if it's a stronger guy who's really well-equipped to defend him like Aiden, he's just unaffectable. He's so strong. His shot is basically untouchable. He can overpower Aiden and KD. Um, I saw him split a sick double in between Landale and KD in this game, too. It's just, you can't stop Jokic. I don't care what you do. We've given him so much credit for the playmaking, and again, we see it that when he wants to go score, he really can just go score at will. And I want to give a lot of credit to Jamal Murray, too. I thought this was a great performance from both of them. Uh, out of the pick-and-roll, they were both just eating. You uh, get a bad MPJ game. I wish he had showed up a little more. Maybe he could have swung the tide in this game. Um, you know, he was great on the glass, but you need him to pull his weight. I mean, that's just borderline. He's got to pull his weight to put this team over the top. But Booker and KD just weren't playing around in this one, Carson. I mean... This is like I think, one of the greatest offensive games I've just ever seen played between two teams. Now, I don't think the Nuggets were great in transition. That's my one real issue is just when the Suns wanted to play fast, they were getting up and down the court at will. The uh, Nuggets were having a lot of trouble getting back. Booker's insane, though, man. I mean, it, pushing the pace whenever he had an opportunity. He was beating guys off the dribble with ease. MPJ, KCP, Brown just exploding past them. Uh, Jab steps, fakes to uh, throw these guys off of the catch, um, throw them off. He's just such a good, crafty scorer. Uh, even, too, when you see him driving, using that offhand to bat guys' hands away to create leverage and space to get downhill against on good on-ball defenders. I mean, KCP and Brown are good defenders, dude, and Book is making them look like, you know, food, man. He's just eating on them, and he's just not missing There's so many Mm -hmm. of these shots that are just contested in crowded lanes. The one that really sticks out to me is late in this game. Uncle Jeff Green and Bruce Brown double team him on a pull-up three. Bottoms. Mm -hmm. Does not matter. And this is also a great playmaking game. Now, I thought... He does have five turnovers in this game. Some of the doubles did affect him, but for the most part, he was really good. he was really doing a good job at identifying when the doubles were coming at him, figuring out who to get the ball to, either getting him an assist or getting him a hockey assist. Um, I thought it was a really unselfish game, a really unselfish 36. Like, it didn't really feel like he forced anything. And we saw some really good pick and roll with him and DeAndre Ayton, too. Um, and then on the other side of it, Kevin Durant knocking down all these tough looks pull-up Jays, turn-around Jays. He's hitting his catch-and-shoot opportunities, and he is, again, imposing his will on this team, getting downhill, getting to the line. Uh, I don't really know what you do adjustment-wise to slow down D'Book and KD. I just don't think the Nuggets have the personnel, Carson. course, and it's almost like, I don't know, in my opinion, I feel like you're just walking into these games and crossing your fingers and praying to the basketball gods that KD or Book's jump shot is off. I don't know what the Nuggets can do adjustment-wise, because it's not like they're playing poor defense. They're just not really getting back in transition, and these guys are just knocking down everything. It's pure elite tough shot making from both of these guys, and when you have one of your top stars like MPJ not show up, knock down down his shots, uh, I'm not surprised. It is disappointing to waste a 50-piece from Jokic, but uh, you've got to get more out of your surrounding pieces, and This is a testament to Booker and KD. We expected this. I was not expecting the Suns to just go out without a fight. Um, These are two top ten guys on the planet. Um, But I'm very impressed, dude. I mean, the level of tough shot making, the playmaking we've seen from these guys, especially without Chris Paul. So I want to get your opinions on the game too, Carson. I also want to ask a couple additional questions. Is there anything you think that the Nuggets can do adjustment-wise to slow these guys down? And my follow-up question is... (laughs) Are the Suns better without Chris Paul?
4: Okay, I think that there's a lot to dive into just on why the Suns have improved, and I don't know that there's really an adjustment. Part of this is unconscious shot making. Like, Devin Booker is shooting 79% over his last two games, Logan. He is 18 of 22 from outside the paint. He is 10 of 10 for mid-range, and he is 8 of 12 on threes. He and KD are combining for 79 points per game, so they are just at a level of pull-up jump shooting specifically that you cannot take away, and that is a pronounced difference in this series. Games one and two, the Suns were getting 28.5 points per game on pull-up jumpers, 41% effective field goal percentage on those shots. The last two games, 44 points per game on pull-up jumpers. 59% effective field goal percentage. And on the playoffs as a whole, they're 36 a game, 50% effective field goal percentage. So almost exactly between the two of them. And I think that's where we expect them to return to, which is by the way, still the best pull-up jump shooting team in the league. Just not, literally not missing level. And they're eking out wins with this unconscious level. So I do feel that Denver's offensive success is more sustainable. But we have to praise Book's growth as a playmaker and how surgical he was there in this game and he was really good in game three as well but 12 assists in this one and he is not imposing himself as a scorer late he is making good reads he's creating good looks for his teammates of course KD did step up and get some buckets Landry Shamit was just nails late in this game but throughout Book is now very willing to whip that pass to the weak side corner out of pick and roll and we've seen Largely the same coverage from the Nuggets this entire series, and it was pretty successful in games one and two, which is we are just going to leave whoever the guy on the weak side corner is. We're going to have that guy's man become our low man, so he's either going gonna to tag the roller, and he's going to offer extra help, another line of defense besides Jokic, who's going to need to come out a bit higher out of his drop because you're dealing with really good mid-range pull-up jump shooters. And they didn't really get punished for leaving whoever it was if it was Torrey Craig, Josh Okogie in those first two games. Now, Book is just coming out. Okay, great. I can see that that guy is open and he is making beautiful passes there consistently and handling traps well. But he is both at like an almost unprecedented level of shot making and playmaking. It's just a legitimately unbelievable level of basketball that he's reached. Like, we have to talk about Devin Booker as reaching a playoff level that like Luka has in previous runs. I mean, it's that special, Logan. He's averaging an absurdly efficient 37 a game, and he's being one of the best playmakers in the world right now. I mean, we had the Jason Tatum conversation with him, and we both said we're leaning Book last episode. I mean, right now, he is in a different class. He is literally playing as one of the five best basketball players on planet Earth, and I don't know if it's sustainable, but it is special like he has outplayed KD in almost every game these playoffs and he has outplayed him in every game in this series and he is going toe-to-toe with Jokic like yeah Jokic has been the best player in this series but not by as much as he should given that he has played like unbelievable peak Jokic level basketball so I want to give Book the biggest shout out for that and then the other thing is the improving rotation in terms of minutes allocation and the improving role player production First thing, as we talked about after game three, more Jock Landale minutes, the guy is battling. I mean, he played 15 minutes over the previous six games, and now he's played 43 in these last two. He's got 14 points, 14 boards in those minutes. Is going to at least make Jokic work. I mean, is going to compete on the glass. Defensively, it doesn't matter, but he's playing capably. He's finishing capably offensively, and he is fighting on the glass. TJ Warren, we talked about, swinging game three in that last couple minutes with his ability to just confidently knock down a catch and shoot three from the corner and then get a good look at a floater. Even Terrence Ross getting more minutes. He's just a superior shot maker to an Okoge or a Craig. And so you get that little bit of extra offensive juice. And then, of course, Shamit has been playing consistently. A lot of people have been upset that he's playing as much as he is. But this was a big night from him with 19 points and five threes. So all in all, they're just adding more offensive skill to, to the floor, which I think makes sense because they can't stop anything that Denver does. So you might as well go all in. You're going to get scorched no matter what. Like, as I said, the Suns have reached this unbelievable level of pure shot making and really good playmaking from their stars, and they're barely winning these games. So that's why I do think that Denver should still be the favorite in this series because yeah, Jokic had 53, which obviously is insane, But you expect him to make pretty much every shot he's getting at like a 60 to 70% clip because Landale, Aiton, they don't have a prayer. Nobody can single cover Jokic, dude. He is too strong and his touch shot making is absolutely absurd. His footworks, his fakes, like everything in combination makes him an unstoppable one-on-one scorer, which I have consistently felt is the most underrated part of his game. Like we all talk about him being the best passing big ever. He's also one of the greatest playoff scorers ever, but yeah. A hook shot is 69% efficiency for Jokic this regular season. A floater is 66% efficiency. So out of pick and roll, he's going to get that floater whenever he wants. Out of the post, he's going to get that hook whenever he wants. And of course, there's some exceptional shot making in there, but he's just getting looks that he eats for breakfast, dude. It's what he does. And I think a lot of people watch Jokic and they go, oh my God, how did he make that? I mean, this guy's doing the YMCA stuff with the post moves and his touch is unbelievable. That's just what he does every single night. It's not abnormal. It's routine. It is like as routine as any dominant scoring performance can be because he doesn't have to do what Book's doing where it's like, oh my God, he's making 85% of his shots outside of the paint. He's getting to his bread and butter looks and he's destroying you. And he was still really good as a playmaker in this game. So like the Nuggets, these last two games, shoot 31% from deep. This is a great shooting team that will progress to the mean and the Suns are going to regress, and they're going to come down to earth a little bit. So I like Denver more in this. The CP question, since I just went on for a bit, I'll let you answer first, but I do think it's an interesting one.
2: I think the real thing that makes this interesting is what Chris Paul doesn't bring to the table at this point in his career, because in a lot of ways, a lot of what you said about the role players, I think is applicable, right? You have a lot more shot creation from the perimeter. Guys who are better... Catching shooters than Chris Paul. You have guys like TJ Warren, like Terrence Ross, um, include Chambonette, who I think are better catching shooters. Ross and Warren, I think, are better at attacking closeouts and getting into that mid range and creating a look than Chris Paul. I, Chris Paul, in a lot of ways, hampers this offense because, you know, I mean, he's genius level intellect. He always knows where to go with the ball, he always knows where to move it. But in a lot of ways, I think cp can be a bit of a ball stopper in this offense and he's not as effective as an off-ball player to guys like ross and warren like and when chris paul is there you're just getting more possessions where the ball is in his hands and i love chris paul i have so much adoration for him and respect for him as a player and love for what he has done throughout his career i mean in 2009 an mvp candidate arguably one of the top three to five guys on the planet, you know, took a pretty under-talented Hornets team to the Western Conference Finals, right? All these playoff mishaps, it's just, so I have respect for what Chris Paul was and what he has done throughout his tenure as an NBA superstar, but at this point in his career, I just don't know what he does better than these guys and how he makes the Suns better, also defensively. I mean, he's a, (laughs) Look, man, I hate to quote Patrick Beverly. CP used to be all defense, man. He's a bit of a traffic cone out there. Like Pat Bev said, you can just blow by the guy. Like, in my opinion, I think the Suns' offense is just a lot better when they are moving quick, when they are in transition, when the ball is not sticking around and slowing down at all. And Chris Paul, in a lot of ways, can slow this offense down. He doesn't space the floor as well as other guys. And he's not as just a great all-around scorer is even some of these other bench guys. Like, even if he is on the floor, I don't really want him initiating anything anymore, Carson, because he has one shot, one spot on the floor, that's that fading Mm -hmm. elbow jumper. I always think you're going to get better offense if D-Book or KD is initiating because they are just better creators. And I know KD can have his off nights where his handle is a little loose where maybe he's not making the best decisions. Maybe he's turning the rock over more. I just still think you're getting consistent better offense than the Suns when KD and Book are playing and when they are out and running. And mm-hmm. I just think there are better options. I don't know. Maybe this is an overreaction to two games where KD and Book have stepped their games up, but I really don't think it is, man. I think they... I think the Suns may just be better without CP out there, without him. I think there are also just guys who are more effective than him at this point in his career. And I feel bad saying that about chris paul but i'm just going off what we've seen from him
4: father time is undefeated i mean lebron is the closest we've ever seen to defeating it and obviously he can't be 2013. well tom brady's
2: uh, tom brady's undefeated against father time
4: well he's retired now and he lost his marriage so i will just start out with a quick historical correction because that is my job here 2008 was the year that cp3 pushed kobe for MVP, and they didn't quite make the conference finals they pushed the spurs seven In the second round. But I don't know that he really matters in this series. Which is crazy. Because when he got hurt, I thought... Not that he was playing exceptionally well. But man, they are just going to be starved for shot creation. And it turns out... Well, when you just put the ball and book in KD's hands more... It's just better offense. And it is wild because it was two years ago. And I've said this stat a few times. But it's just remarkable. That in this exact playoff matchup... CP3 scored 11 mid-range points per game on 65% from the mid-range. He torched Jokic out of that drop. He made those mid-range jumpers look like layups, and he just hasn't been at that level as a shot maker this year, in this postseason, and no matter what, you are not getting as good of a look with CP3 handling the ball, especially with the playmaking that we're seeing from both Book and KD. I mean, KD struggled a bit more. I thought he had some where he tried to find the guy in the weak side corner, and I think Jamal Murray specifically intercepted him twice. But still, good playmaking overall from KD from, as compared to CP3, who, yeah, is just going to try to get to that elbow jumper. Like, they don't need him. He's not an ideal catch and shooter. He is a defensive liability at this point, and he's not going to come back until game six, at least, is the update, so we just might not see him in this series. I will say, though, I mean, campaign starting is a bit of a problem, because campaign does still take up a few possessions. He, you know, brings a little bit more ball handling than all these other guys, but he just misses everything, and like, yeah, he's got some playmaking chops, but... If somebody's got to run six possessions a game, yeah, I would rather it be CP3 than campaign. But I think if CP3 comes back, it's going to be more than that. He's going to have a more pronounced role and he's going to dictate more than he probably should, given the level that Book and KD are at right now. So I laid out why I think that what we're seeing from the Nuggets is just more sustainable, right? Jokic can sort of walk into this. I haven't seen the Suns do anything to make this offense uncomfortable. Like Jamal was still getting his efficient 28 takes Landry Shamit down to the post and just barbecues him. Like that guy can score from anywhere on the floor. He's so fun to watch. And MPJ, of course, shoots the ball when he touches it. That's what he does. That's what he's always done. It's a reason he'll never be a great player. The guy has no playmaking chops and also can't really create a shot for himself off the bounce outside of, I'm just going to shoot this three right in your mouth. But He's one of the best pure shooters literally ever. So you live with it. He had a bad game. Really, the only shot I had a problem with was that transition three down five where Aiton's trailing, and it seemed like he got affected, and he doesn't even get rim. You don't need to force a shot there. KCP was wide open in the corner. But MBJ is going to be fine. Jamal's playing well. This team has great spot-up shooting, and the Suns do not have a prayer of an answer for Nikola Jokic. So all that considered, with home court, with their better depth, better supporting cast, I just feel like it's more replicable. What's your take?
2: No, I completely agree, and I think that you're right, and that's what the Suns should do. I think you lean into the skid here. You're going to live and die by these two guys going out, D-Book and KD, balling out every night. I think you lean into it. I think you play more offense. I think you just you try to outrun them and just outscore them because I think you're right. I don't think they have a prayer at stopping anything that the Nuggets do offensively. We've seen the Nuggets have a few... Off nights, But, again, it hasn't been anything that Phoenix has done defensively to slow them down. So I think you lean into it, you play your best offensive guys, and you just try to outrun the Nuggets on both ends, get more transition opportunities, and just try to outscore them. Because um, I don't think there's going to be very little defense played the rest of the series. But I also think you're right. I think Denver has the best player on the floor uh, who is unstoppable in this matchup. And I think their recipe for success is more sustainable. You know, I can see KD or Book having an off night. Maybe not Book at this point. I think you tweeted this out during the last game. I don't know if Devin Booker will ever miss a shot again. Maybe he just never does. Um, And that could put him away. But I do think the Nuggets uh, formula is more sustainable. And that's how I predict games. So, yeah, I think it's Nuggets in... I was pretty confident, man, for a while in this series. I was thinking Nuggets in five. I'm still going to go... I think I'm probably going to go Nuggets in seven. I think the Suns probably find a way to push this thing.
4: Let's move on to Sixers-Celtics here, Logan, because that's the other series sitting at two games apiece. James Harden with another 40-burger. He goes crazy. He plays two very poor games, and then he leads the Sixers to another one. What did you take away from this?
2: You know, I think if you really want to simplify it in this exact game— The Sixers' stars were just better. Um, Embiid and Harden were just the two best players on the court. I do want to start off. I mean, I was honestly just surprised Boston was able to get back into this game. Uh, They missed 14 of 15 straight field goals in the first quarter. They are settling. They're missing open threes. They're not getting downhill. The first half, they shoot 6 of 18 in the paint, 9 of 25 on threes. And at a point, they're down 16 in this game. Shout out Malcolm Brogdon and Jalen Brown for keeping them afloat. JB has a crazy first quarter, and it's it's amazing to me, man. Jalen Brown is just one of those guys who can, like, he's like a match, man, can just get on fire really quick. 12 points in the first quarter. Brogdon has 13. And shout-out Tatum for what he was able to do in the second half. 1 of 9 in the first half, 2 points, 9 boards. He starts 0 of 8 to this game, and he found a way to be effective in the first half without scoring. Turns this into a really good all-around game for him. 24-18-6 with 5 stocks. 9 of 20, only 1 of 6 from behind the arc. But he was much better at attacking downhill in the second half. He was finishing better at the rack. This was a good playmaking game, I thought, from Tatum. He was setting up his teammates, uh, especially on slides. When Embiid would slide off, that guy in the dunker spot just throwing a little bounce pass to him. Uh, it was a great defensive game, hustling on the glass, a lot of blocked shots, closing out well. Uh, we can debate whether that uh, step-back 3 on Maxey was a foul. I liked it. No harm, no foul. I think Tatum's got ice in his veins. Uh, I did have an issue with Tatum on that final Celtics possession, though, Carson. I thought, it's again, man, it's the Celtics in crunch time. And one, they don't get the ball to Tatum until there's five seconds on the clock. And that's something that I have an issue with. Get him that ball or Brown the ball on the inbound. Give them 10 seconds to work that's enough time to either go downhill and get a layup if the clock is about to expire or to kick it out. Tatum starts driving with five seconds on the clock instead of eight or ten, kicks it out, smart wets the three, but it's too late. It's after the buzzer. And I think Tatum just, one, has to have the awareness. The clock is going down. I just need to get a layup up and see if I can get this to hit rim and go in. And I want to see that dog in Tatum, man. I want to see Tatum... It's, it's a damned if you do, damned if you don't, right? If he misses it and there's time on the clock, I'm going to go, oh, you should have kicked it out to the shooter. But at a point, I just want to see Tatum say, I'm the best player on the freaking court. I want this shot. This is my time to shine. I'm going to put this game away. And he made the right play to Marcus Smart, but it was just too late. So I thought that was very, very poor execution from Boston late.
4: Well, how about you just don't let it get to that spot? Like, yeah. you're down <laughs> one. Why is Jason Tatum taking his first dribble with five seconds on the clock when you had the ball with 18 seconds remaining in this game? It is the most Boston Celtics of these last two years way to lose a game that you could drop.
2: 100%. Why are you inbounding the ball to Marcus Smart and letting him pound the ball? It doesn't make sense. So I thought that was pretty poor execution from Boston late. Again, Nothing new out of the Boston Celtics. That didn't surprise me whatsoever. Credit to them for getting back in this game. But credit to Philadelphia, and I want to give – I don't want to apologize to James Harden because he could very well come out next game, shoot 1-10 from behind the yard, 3-20, <laughs> and we all go back to, you know, taking Harden to the outhouse. But this was a great James Harden game, and I don't – like just a great James Harden game. one turnover, 16-23 from the field, 6-9 of from deep. He was killing the Celtics out of the pick and roll. This was the closest I've seen to Harden turning back the clock. It was so beautiful. Collapsing the defense, making good drive and kick reads, getting the Celtics in rotation, and he was actually being more physical and aggressive in a couple of ways. He was getting downhill, and he was using his body to get into that floater, to get a touch shot off, instead of flailing and looking for foul calls. And he was the only reason the Sixers were in this game late. He hits that pull-up midy on JB late in this game. He drives on Brogdon for a late layup. He hits that clutch floater on Al Horford to tie this game up. And, of course, he hits the game-winning three, his second of the series. He's hit both of the game-winners in both of the Sixers' wins. JB helps off a little too much. They triple-team Embiid. It leaves Harden wide open in the corner. That's another issue I have. I get it. You're scared of Embiid killing you in the big moment. He's the MVP of the league. He scored 30 a night, and that's his shot, man. He's got great touch, but Big Al is sitting there in the paint, dude. Al Horford is there. He had five blocks in this game. Like, that's not your job, Jalen Brown. Maybe guard the guy who has 39 points. So they triple-team Embiid. Embiid jumps, spots Harden. It's not a great pass, but it's the pass that was made. Harden catches it, rises and fire. Cash, man. Um, I thought this was a great Embiid game. Like I said, they were the two best players on the court. He was attacking mismatches. He was reading doubles really well. This was a good jump-shooting performance. And I just want to say two cards, and I don't know how you felt about this, man. Why are they playing lineups without a big out there? Like... I don't like any of the guys the Celtics throw at him without Horford. He kills guys like Marcus Smart. He kills guys like Grant Williams, and I don't like his whistling against these smaller guys too because he's still getting fouls against them when they're just trying their hardest. Like, I also just don't really like Grant Williams. I think Grant Williams oh. sucks. Um, That's yeah, Batman I mean,
4: you're talking about, sorry. buddy.
2: I think Batman kind of sucks. He can't defend anyone. I've said this to you multiple times. I'll say it on air here. Uh, Grant Williams looks like a toddler running around on the court when he gets beat off the dribble, like a, I don't know, like a little wind-up toy, like he's trying to find his way and waddle back into the play, and he's very limited offensively. I just think Grant Williams is kind of a bozo and shouldn't really be playing. Um, yeah, I thought the Sixers had the two best guys on the court tonight, and the Celtics make some... Pretty bad decisions late in this game. But, I mean, again, they were down 16 after a really bad first half. Shout out them for clawing and fighting to get back into this game. But, again, I'm disappointed with their execution late. And, again, too, another big play late in this game. P.J. Tucker gets an offensive rebound off of a uh, air ball. I mean, it lands right in his pocket. But they foul him, second-chance points. They get an and-one. That ties the game up, too. Um, I The Sixers had the two best players on the court tonight, uh, in that game. Celtics had some bad execution late, and they weren't on their ball in the first half. But I really do think it came down to the six, the Sixers superstars just being better in this one.
4: You talk about their willingness to guard and bead with somebody other than a big, particularly Horford, who was fantastic on him. And, I mean, the most shocking moment of all is that that is how they handle the possession that decides this game. Like, the sequences leading up to that Fourth quarter, Embiid goes one of five. He's blocked twice by Al Horford. I believe he's guarded by him on all those field goal attempts. He has two points. Like, they had to limp into overtime in spite of Embiid's struggles because Horford, dude, I mean, we have heard so many times, oh, Al Horford is the Embiid stopper, right? And then this year, Embiid reached a different level than he ever has before, and he scorched Boston for 50 and all that. But Horford guards him so well. His ability to keep his hands active to affect and intimidate Embiid's jumper without ever breaking his discipline, without biting on fakes, which Embiid is just cooking like everybody else on the floor. And dude, Embiid, I mean, legitimately might be the most prolific foul drawer in terms of craft that I've ever seen. And certainly from the big man spot. I mean, he can just walk his way into 15 free throws in any game. Horford doesn't bite on that. And he's able to matches physicality he's a big body he's not going to be overpowered so he can just contest Embiid's game in every way better certainly than anybody else on this floor and at almost 37 years old legit maybe still better than like I don't know if I want to say anyone in the league but he's got to be up there in the conversation the only time that Embiid got him like at all was with that fake in overtime and then Marcus Smart took the charge so they weren't even punished for that so Why do you start that possession with Marcus Smart on him and then you willingly switch it to Tatum? Like, you really want Horford there as the helper? You think he's more valuable there? I get one of the blocks that he had on Embiid was off an offensive rebound and, like, Horford had some good help side blocks in this game. But he has stifled Embiid one-on-one in the home stretch of this game. So, that's not more valuable because now you're putting yourself in a position where You're doubling anyways. And the double doesn't even involve Horford because I guess Jalen thinks that he can blindside him, but he doesn't. Embiid sees the double coming, and now you are giving him the option to make the pass to the corner to James Harden, the guy who's sitting on 40. Like, if you're going to force him to make that read to the corner, make it be to P.J. Tucker, dude. Don't let it be to James Harden when you're not even involving Horford, guarding Embiid. Like, just a really... Really poor decision there, but I still think Embiid has to be better for them to win this series because you're not getting this hard a night tonight, and Boston still sort of gave this game away. They were frustrating in the first half, to say the least, the willingness to just jack up threes and poor defensive effort in the late second quarter. I thought that game was going to spiral, and yeah, they did fight back, but then you have like disastrous execution on their last defensive and offensive possessions and you just barely get out of this one alive, Boston's still just better to me, but Harden was awesome in every single way. You said it, like floater range. He has been so good in games one and four with that short-range, mid-range jump shooting where he gets a bit of an angle and he uses his physicality into that step back or just into a pull-up jumper inside the paint. He's been awesome, but the step backs, I mean, beyond the arc, he was nails. He was getting to the rim. He still had three looks there, affected by length that he missed in this game. But considering that he was whatever it was, 9 of 40 on shots inside of 8 feet, this was a big improvement, clearly his best game of the playoffs there. But he's inconsistent. So they have to capitalize on that kind of performance. They did. They have both times. But I just think if the Celtics play better throughout, if they don't shoot themselves in the foot, they win this game unless, like, Embiid goes... Or not this game, this game actually yeah I do feel that way but especially this series I do want to praise Tatum for overcoming such a terrible shooting start I mean you mentioned him getting downhill more third quarter he has six buckets all in the paint and he has two assists off of drive he completely shifted his mindset from settling to getting into that painted area no matter what and I think that's a key because the Celtics are going to shoot a lot of threes no matter what, especially in this matchup against Embiid, who was going to try to be parked in that paint as much as possible. That's where he's most valuable as this awesome deterrent. But you want them to be drive and kick threes. You don't want them to be pull up threes. And that's going to be a point of emphasis for this team throughout the playoffs in any matchup. Like they're just better looks. You will take an open catch and shoot three over. Okay, Embiid dropped. I'm just going to pull this. It's just more efficient to create those quality looks with the drive and kick. But, I mean, his effort on the glass was amazing defensively, you know, as a help side rim protector. Just super active four blocks. But it's not enough when you start this game poorly and you end this game very poorly. I still feel Boston's a better team. Everything that I've said before, they have more options. I think they have the higher ceiling on both ends of the floor. They have this unbelievable shooting, depth of creators, great guard core. They should win this series. And if they don't, I have a feeling it is going to be in catastrophic fashion. Because game one, I mean, they obviously should have won. And that is coming back to bite them here because now they're in an even series and they got to keep their feet on the gas. But maybe if they just didn't let James Harden play street ball, switching every time, letting him get a big on him whenever he wanted, And maybe if they played with effort and purpose defensively, they beat James Harden and Paul Reed and the boys. But they didn't because they're the Celtics, and this is what they do. So how are you feeling about where this series is headed from here?
2: I mean, I, I do think the Celtics are just flat out the better team. And I would say Celtics in six. But, man, if they blow this, dude, I mean, this is one of the biggest, like, stains on an NBA team that I can remember. Like, this will be an egregiously, like, an all-time, like, bad series from the Celtics. It wouldn't surprise me because I've seen crazier things and I've seen a lot of bad Celtics, but I'm still leaning Celtics in six. And I think that if they open up this game better, this is a Celtics team that is prone to settling for a lot of threes. And the frustrating thing about it is a lot of these in the first quarter weren't even settling. Don't get me wrong. You do have a fair amount of Derek White, Malcolm Brogdon, Marcus Smart, Jason Tatum, just, like, walking in to pull up threes, but you do have a lot of drive and kick opportunities that were wide open where they're swinging it around the arc and they're just flat out missing. Um I do need to see more defensive intensity. I need to see them really getting up on Harden, playing physical like they did in game 2. I would still say Celtics in 6. I just think flat, I think you said it, bro. You can't expect James Harden to get you 40 every night, and I think Embiid is going to have to be unconscious in this series for them to pull it out. Maxie and Harris have not been great in this series uh, consistently. Like, I think the Celtics are just a better team. Uh, So, God, I would not be surprised to see it go 7, but my answer right now is Celtics in 6.
4: Well, you mentioned all-time bad series, Logan, and nobody enjoys suckering the other team into those more than the Miami Heat, who are now up 3-1 on the New York Knicks. We picked against them, Logan. And we feel a bit foolish now, so what's your take on this series and this game four?
2: Yeah, I feel mighty foolish. I bet against the team with the best offensive player and the best defensive player in this series. That's why I feel foolish. I mean, Jimmy, I think is league's above anybody else on the court offensively. I think Bam is better defensively, and they just don't have an answer for Jimmy Butler. Uh, He is absolutely cooking Julius Randle on ball. He's destroying the Knicks uh, in the lane and it sucks because this is a great Miami Heat shooting team. They're inconsistent sometimes, but they are a great spot-up shooting team. When you're throwing doubles and help at Jimmy Butler all game, you're fucked. <laughs> you know, I don't <laughs> I don't know what to tell you, buddy. Sorry. Jimmy's going to find that guy that you're sliding off of and he's going to kill him. And if you don't throw that double, if you have Quentin Grimes who I love Quentin Grimes, I think he's going to be a good player in the long term. Man, dude, Miami was just attacking him at will. Anytime a guy had the ball and Quentin was on them, they were attacking him downhill, especially Jimmy. like Jimmy was abusing Julius Randle on drives, just blowing past him. And Quentin, he was just overpowering and baiting him. Um, They don't have an answer for Bam at a bio either. Bam gets a lot of open lanes where Mitchell Robinson had to come out a little higher off of a pick and roll, and that opened up the lane for Bam, who threw down some big jams. The Knicks have a lack of defensive effort here, too. Again, helping off of Jimmy too much. Maybe ball-watching at times. You get a lot of open threes off of that. Still getting cooked in transition. I still want to see this team be more physical. And that's, again, where I was sorely let down by the New York Knicks in this game again. The Heat won all of the hustle plays in this game. And in a grimy series like this, that is what it comes down to. Miami wins the turnover battle 16-12. They win the points off turnover battle 22-15. to They win the rebounding battle 44-35. And I don't know if you saw Carson, but at the start of that fourth quarter, what are you supposed to do? The Heat basically have the ball for like two straight minutes off of offensive rebounds. They have 13 offensive boards in this matchup. Seven of them come in the fourth quarter, and I believe four of them came back-to-back-to-back-to-back to back to back to back on the same possession where they just kept extending the possession. So one that's crucial in the fourth quarter when you need to cut a lead and get a run going, but it's also crucial when it's just demoralizing. You're getting tired on defense, you're playing good defense and forcing the miss shots, and then you're just not finishing it off and you're getting crushed on the glass. Seven offensive boards in the fourth quarter. Just abysmal effort there, man. And th- another big thing too here, uh, we've touched on the Knicks shooting woes. The Heat can also afford to help off of Brunson and Randall, and we saw this a lot in this game because of their lack of shooting. They are consistently collapsing on the ball in the paint when it goes down there. If it's Randall penetrating, if it's Brunson penetrating, if you're Miami, you are living with the Knicks launching up any three, and you're going to force them to kill you there. And the Knicks did shoot really well, but it's just not enough, man. I, for most of this for most of this game, they were at 53% from the field and 40% from deep. Yeah, but they didn't, deep.
4: Nah, they didn't shoot from volume from deep, though. They weren't willing to shoot. I mean, it was the same issue. They just didn't miss quite as much.
2: Mm-hmm. And, and so, in a game that is this marginal where it's grimy, like I said, man, you've got to win the hustle plays in this one, and I just didn't see enough effort from New York. It's where I've consistently been let down, the rebounding, the hustle battle, And I have got to stop underestimating Miami in that fashion. Uh, They have the best offensive player in this series. They have the best defensive player in this series. They have the better shooting roster depth in this series. And they've got more hustlers, more dogs, man, more guys that want this shit. The Knicks just seem kind of dejected and demoralized and... Uh, I also just don't think – I think Tom Thibodeau needs to go, man. I've seen a sore li- – like a lacking of adjustments in this series, mm-hmm. and I'm disappointed because, again, this is a Knicks roster that I do think is more talented top to bottom with more guys. They can do a lot of stuff, but we've seen a lot of stagnation in the offense and a lot of lack of adjustments to slow down Miami throughout this series, and I think that is a stain on Tom Thibodeau, something that is very on-brand for Tibbs. Um also, man, I don't think Tom Thibodeau could get me to run through a paper banner in the huddle, man. Listening to him in the little courtside uh, breaks during timeouts. All right, guys, come on, we gotta, we gotta do better. We gotta, we gotta hustle more. We gotta do better. Darvin Ham gets me fired up. Darvin Ham gets me ready to go, man. Where mm-hmm. I'm, I'm ready. Thibodeau, I don't know, man. It's like he's playing a game of chess, like with his boy, muttering under his breath or something, man. I don't. It's, it's really quiet. I. I don't think Tibbs is a good coach, and I think maybe the Knicks should also explore moving on from him after this season, too. Just a lack of adjustments in this series, and I don't know, man. I, I don't know if he cares that much.
4: Tibbs would have you play in 45 minutes, though. Whether you're playing hard or not, you're going to be out there until your legs fall off. I think... Absolutely. I mean, with as hard as everybody was on Bud, and of course they were at a much more significant talent advantage, and he had some glaring lack of offensive direction when it mattered most, and playing the drop, conceding good looks from deep and good mid-range pull-up looks for Jimmy just really did kill the Bucks in that series, but obviously he gets fired. He's got a hell of a better resume winning with that team than Tibbs does in New York. Yeah, I think that what this ultimately comes down to is that the Knicks have not held the Heat accountable for loading up, for dedicating multiple defenders to their star shot creators and to basically having somebody in the paint as a helper at all times. Like, they went 7 of 34 from deep in Game 1, and then they went 8 of 40 from deep in Game 3. Part of that is their stars not making their pull-up threes, but it is mostly just bad spot-up shooting. And so this is what we've seen the Heat turn to. And it's just hard to create really good offense when you're working at a disadvantage like that. Like I thought Brunson had some awesome buckets in the lane in this one, like floaters, super impressive, skilled shot-making there. But the drive and kick is a bit limited because of the shooting limitations that the Knicks have. Randall, I thought, had some really nice physical downhill drives, but overall just wasn't good enough. I mean... Six turnovers to three assists in this game. I think he's got to be better. A couple of offensive fouls out of control in a couple spots. But they just didn't hold the Heat accountable in the way that they needed to. And then the effort plays is the other key thing. I mean, you mentioned it. Seven nothing offensive boards in the fourth. The Heat remained the more active, the more consistently tenacious defensive team. And so all those things come together. The Knicks just aren't talented enough to get by on that. I mean, yeah, they have two of the three best offensive creators in this series, and sometimes RJ is really good. Congratulations. This depth, I think, has been a consistent disappointment in this series, a lot of that because of shot making, but it's also been embarrassing collectively that they cannot contain Jimmy Butler at all. I mean, they cannot keep him out of the lane, and maybe I shouldn't say embarrassing because the Milwaukee Bucks had a really hard time with this, but it's just... I mean, he gets there whenever he wants. He has 31 free throws in three games. Of course, Jimmy always eats up free throws, but it's been extra in this series. And he's playmaking at a really high level. The Heat are better. And the Heat have shown us that they were better since game one. They almost won game two without Jimmy Logan. They execute better. They have the more reliable offensive formula because they can actually create good shots, even with their limited shot creators outside of Jimmy. I mean, they're able to run creative screening actions to get guys open for shots. We've still seen the Knicks run that drop too much. Kyle Lowry earlier in this game just walks into two mid-range pull-ups because they're playing drop. What else is Kyle Lowry going to do, bro? He's not going to get by you. All he can do is shoot the ball. That's all that most of these guys can do. But even still, I think that they've had too much trouble containing them like in dribble penetration. Like, how is Max Struess getting by you? I mean, this game, it was largely beyond the arc, and it was transition. He was opportunistic. But they've just been more opportunistic. They've been more dialed in. They've been better. They've schemed better. They've executed better. And bye-bye, New York. I think that this is, frankly, a pretty embarrassing way to go out for the Knicks. It's been ugly. But I also think we got to give props to the Heat. I mean, very likely, en route to their third conference finals appearance in four years like shout out spo shout out jimmy shout out bam for the level he's at defensively and shout out to all these dogs man the heat culture is living up to the hype and i apologize yet again for so confidently underestimating them
2: i underestimated them too bro i feel stupid for it the heat shoot nine more field goals in this game carson they shoot 11 more times from behind the arc that's opportunity that's effort they created those man that's what miami does and I'm just impressed by just the effort they give man Caleb Martin too in this game dude they just like fly around like just like bulls in a china shop man Mm -hmm. they're all it's all effort it's all grit it's all tenacity I don't know what I I should have expected this man they're all a bunch of undrafted guys of course they're gonna have a chip on their shoulder of course they're hungry this is I mean I wouldn't call the Miami Heat a dynasty at this point right because I think you got to get a couple of
4: Whoa, 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 whoa. Yeah, uh,
2: oh, I, God. I'm going to pump the brakes
4: on that one, Logan. The zero championship post-LeBron Miami <laughs> Heat. I'm not going to allow you to call a dynasty. I
2: wouldn't call them a dynasty because you got to get a couple of championships for that. But the remarkable consistency in which they've been able to dominate the Eastern Conference is super impressive. And you know what? I'm not going to count them out against the Boston Celtics, man. I won't. I think that's what we're going to get. I give Miami a real puncher's chance against anybody because all these teams have been inconsistent up and down, you know, it is consistent effort, tenacity, grit, hustle. And that's what the Heat and, and yeah, and Jimmy and Butler. Jimmy Butler. Uh, very true, my friend. Uh, I'm I'm flabbergasted with the Miami Heat and how all of us so called NBA experts uh, have been proven wrong. And you know what? I'm happy. I like being wrong sometimes, man. It's, it's nice. It's what makes basketball fun. But I've completely underestimated the Miami Heat throughout the entirety of these playoffs. And I'm done doing it. They've, they've shown me why they're here. They show me they deserve to be here. And they're legit.
4: Suppose the top 10 coach of all time. He's the best coach in the NBA today. And that really matters. He is a guy who can contribute significantly to you winning series. Winning a lot of games. I mean, he has just schooled Tibbs and he schooled Bud. Like, those are both Coach of the Year winners (laughs) within the last few years. The man is just operating at a different level. So, shout out Heat. Heat culture, baby. That's going to do it for us here today. Lots of fun basketball going on. All for the series, I think, still very entertaining. So we will keep you guys tuned in to all of our thoughts, all of our analysis. We'll be back in a couple nights after Game 5 of Warriors-Lakers. If you enjoyed the content, then you can find us across all audio platforms for the pod, and you can also find us on the Volume YouTube channel. So please choose whichever of those you prefer or both and you can follow us across social media tiktok is at nerd sesh. that's where we're most consistent with our trivia content you can also follow us on instagram same handle and twitter is at nerd underscore sesh so with that as always i've been carson brabber
2: i have been logan camden
4: and this was nerd sesh